This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... The Efficiency Paradox. The Eldritch House Plan of 101 Linfield. Science Fiction Cinema of the Mid-60s. And Meteor vs. Torpedo Factory. In Sunset City, there's always something fishy going on, and we're not talking tuna. Normally, good neighbors are suddenly stealing jewels, kidnapping kitties, and blackmailing the mayor. The magical kitties of Sunset City have their paws full. That's why they've formed the Cat Eyes Detective Agency. Because even though human detectives are pretty good at their jobs, sometimes it takes magic to uncover what's really going on in this town. Magical kitties save the day is the family favorite role-playing game for all ages. I am so excited about this, I have to break character. <laughs> you know I love cats and noir. Atlas Games adds mystery and intrigue to your game with the Kitty Noir hometown. Are there scritches? Do the cats get scritches? Kitty Noir has players explore a whole new detective series or throw in a mystery that any visiting kitty can uncover. Okay, but is it really noir? Kitty Noir takes its inspiration from classic film noir and crime movies from the 1930s to the 1950s and from Golden Age science fiction stories of time travel. Someone has frozen the city in time inside a magical bubble, and they don't want anyone to know about it. And it's now on Kickstarter, you say? You said that, but you are correct. Hmm. Are there any other new magical kitty treats I can add to my collection? Well, there's the new Game Master Kit, too. Yeah, it's got a sturdy GM screen, plus a handy poster of kitty breeds to help you pick your perfect kitty character. Don't you mean my perfect kitty character? Uh, if you keep that up, I won't mention the full-size poster map of Sunset City. Find Magical Kitties Noir on Kickstarter from March 28th to April 27th, 2023. Learn more at atlas-games.com or follow the link in the show notes. The beep of the randomizer, the shuffle of the chits and standees, the snap of delicious whole wheat pretzels, and the ominous gaze of John Cage coming alive welcome us into, it's not a shag carpeted basement, my friend. No siree. It's like a WeWork establishment. It's all <laughs> hard corners and Danish furniture because we are in a gaming hut where we are going to look at efficiency, and what does it have to do with gaming? Some would say nothing whatsoever, but others would say there's a paradox attached to it, and one of those people would be Robin. So yes. why don't you lay out the efficiency paradox? So the efficiency paradox occurs when there is a scenario, and for scenario we can say published scenario, or set of roughly jotted down notes, or random thoughts in the GM's head, that has a number of branches that the players can select as their characters move through the narrative, but the characters move so efficiently through the narrative at each point of which identifying what they think to them all unanimously has to be the only possible choice, that they move through that narrative with a minimum of faffing about, a maximum of agreement, 
They move from scene to scene, uh, presumably also victoriously as they move from scene to scene, and therefore don't get shunted off into some side narrative where they have to cope with a negative consequence. And they get to the end and they defeat the bad guys. They have a great time, except they then leave thinking, well, that scenario was awfully linear now, wasn't it? Now, it isn't linear because you, the GM, or perhaps you or I, Ken, the scenario writers, had a bunch of other options, but they just convinced themselves that there was only one way to go, and they did that, and it worked. So the paradox is that the more efficiently the players move through the narrative, the more they may wind up thinking that was the only possible narrative, and that it was linear, or even worse, that it was railroaded. And so this, I guess, goes to the broader question of linearity and perception versus reality. Ken, have you encountered the efficiency paradox at your game table? Well, I am blessed with players that make a production out of even doing things right. So it, it feels less linear, even if on the rare occasions that they just set them up and knock them down. I have seen it at convention tables an awful lot where not necessarily where I'm running, but often where I'm playing. Um, we will get into a groove and we will just bulldoze the poor innocent GM who thought that they had a scary recondite weird scenario and we'll just, you know, it's just mini golf to us. Bam, 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 bam. Thank you. Everyone had fun sh handshakes all around. And I feel like everyone sort of enjoys that, but it's not the same thing that you would enjoy at your own table. And you certainly wouldn't enjoy it over and over again at your own table. And I think that that degree of focus that at least I bring to play when it's, you know, my money or my uh, valuable convention time on the table. And that I think other sort of, I don't want to say alpha gamers, but people who've gamed a lot and sort of are familiar with the, with the ways you can do things wrong and convince themselves not to do those things, at least in a convention setting, when you're playing with strangers, you don't want to let everything hang out a lot. I see that happen or I used to see it a, a lot at conventions when I was playing a lot of conventions. So at my, table, I guess it's the same solution as it is the zeroth law of everything is read your players and feed what they need to make the game, not just, you know, solvable, which obviously comes basically down to scenario design, but make it fun and wild in the moment and feel organic and feel like it's flown out of a natural interplay between players and world, as opposed to a simple, you know, four stops to downtown. Thank you very much. We're getting off the bus. Right. I too do not face this problem with my regular group, <laughs> but I see it in playtest reports that come back. And so this comes with the, the further element of scenario design. Not only how do you present the players in a session that's being run by not you, but by the GM, not only with choices, but the realization that there are choices. Now, part of this is that, especially in playtests, uh, but just in general, the sort of people who play role-playing games are capable of having fun and then talking themselves out of having had fun yeah. when they stop to analyze it. This, this is not exclusive to role-playing games, we should add. <laughs> no, but... But it does happen a lot, of, yes. Of the versions of this problem, it's the one that you and I <laughs> are sometimes yeah. called upon to solve. So I guess on the highest level, this is an expectations management question, but it's also a expectations management question around linearity, which is, as we pointed out, incredibly subjective. The, there's a, I guess there's a converse of the efficiency paradox, which is that sometimes a very linear adventure that nonetheless 
stumps the players or causes them to speculate or makes them think about going off in another direction that the GM hadn't anticipated, but then not, that can sometimes strike them as extremely full of choice. Mm -hmm. So it's very much about subjectivity and the group dynamic. So how do we, is there a way to signal to people that both of the options that you had, you know, you had a choice of going down to the green grocers and talking to him or going to the library and the way it works is you're only probably going to do one of those things. I'm, I'm excited for this Veggie Tales Cthulhu Mythos crossover that you're building. By the right. way, I want to well, say that it's the, the Green Grocer's an interesting dude, but we can't right. we can't get into that. He's mobbed up, is what you're trying to say. I get it. Yeah, All exactly. Right. How do you make the players feel that they would have also had something interesting happen to them had they gone the other way? And does that even really matter? outside of the talking yourself out of having had fun phenomenon. I feel like one of the ways to do it, and a thing that I very much encourage in my games, is for have the players split up, if that's possible. So Emily goes to talk to the greengrocer, and John goes to the library, and then they both get, you know, the various clues that, that move them forward through the story, but they are experiencing not just their own experiences as a linear experience, but they're looking across the table and seeing, oh, look, I could have gone with John's character to the library. I would have had these fun, interesting things. Conversely, you know, I did this other stuff. So the the reality and the organic reality of the of the setting, you know, only increases the more you touch it. And I know that in a straight up, you know, haunted house game, it might not be best practice to split the party, but I think in the investigative part or the town part or the social intrigue part of an adventure, however you want to define that, I think it makes a great deal of sense to split the party because you get more information and you find out more routes. And maybe both the greengrocer and the library give you the way into the haunted windmill, but one of them seems way more dangerous. And one of them, you know, comes with a Tommy gun that you found, you know, in the, you know, Cole Robbie section. And I think that works. And I think it's also another paradox <laughs> because you've solved the problem of uh, people feeling they've not had a choice by giving them both choices, mm -hmm. by letting them pick both yeah. and do all of the scenes in the scenario, which, in fact, if you have to do all of the scenes to feel that you had fun, that's linear. <laughs> So, what do we do with that? Well, it's linear. If if linear means, I mean, you're you're switching uh, destinations because linear is both about your narrative structure. There was only one trail of scenes, and it's about your experience. As we've talked, it's a mismatch between those things. Yeah, but I don't know that your experience is linear if you've watched other people having different experiences. I think maybe you as a party can all get together and say, well, really everything in that area was funneling us towards the haunted windmill. But again, you know, that's sort of the point of any mystery is that you get to the solution one way or the other. So by that time, you've defined every mystery structure literally as a linear mystery, and that doesn't solve anything, I think. Right. And that also gets to the question of, we've seen and talked about various fields where there's a critical thing that people say when they have a misgiving or didn't like something, or mm -hmm. in this case, are talking themselves out of something that <laughs> right. they patently enjoyed as you watch them enjoy it. And that's just people may seize on a term to describe that feeling, which isn't maybe necessarily what it was at all, right? That it may be that the technically the scenario was multi-threaded, 
but that they just didn't like the fact that the choices seemed easy to them, even if those same choices were challenging to other groups. That, mm. in a way, another, I guess, solution then would be that when your players agree too quickly and too hard on a course of action, which you would think is, this is highly desirable. We mm -hmm. want this. We I don't want this. Yeah, this is great. But what if they decide afterwards that that made it too easy, right? Should you maybe introduce a hint of doubt and say, oh, yeah, but the, you know, there is the greengrocer. He had that funny look in his eye. Like, do you then want to remind people that there is another possibly valid choice before they all go to library. I, I feel like that is playing with fire. I think encouraging players to rabbit around is like encouraging governments to spend money. It just, it already happens. Your job is to point it in the direction you want, right? What I would do in lieu of encouraging rabbiting is if I was worried about pacing, for example, they're bam, 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 solving all the problems. I would just make the obstacle tougher. I would right. have the greengrocer. He saw them go into the library. Then they head for the old windmill. And he's like, oh, our mob connection with the windmill Frankenstein is going to be exposed. And he calls his mob buddies. And he says, those uh, four to six handsome strangers are heading for the windmill. Maybe you'd better uh, dry gulch them on the road. And so you throw in a fun mob ambush. And... Then they feel, all right, we earned this linear trip to the windmill because we beat that mob ambush and it was very, very tough because we did not have our Tommy gun that we would have gotten from the kohlrabi had we talked to the greengrocer. Right. And in fact, what you're doing, I guess, is creating a consequence for not talking to the greengrocer. Yeah. And so if you don't pick the greengrocer, there's a consequence in the final scene. If you, if you do talk to the greengrocer, then there's something that you don't know from the library, which you nonetheless, as scenario designer slash GM, have to make clear to the players that they, again, they made an A-B choice mm -hmm. and they had this other set of consequences, that there's no possible one right way to cover everything mm -hmm. in this scenario. But again, the question would be, do they really want that? Or is their concern for linearity a uh, an umbrella term for, for some other thing? Or... Is there just no such thing as happiness? I guess it's really my <laughs> I mean, question. This again comes down to your table. And I've, I've certainly been at tables where there was no such thing as happiness. Although I don't know that it got all the way to the linearity paradox before we figured that part out. Right. So as designers, do we care? Do we try to build in things to deal with this paradox? Or do we just write this off as a thing that happens sometimes? I feel like you can talk about pacing and the kind of issues that we talked about just now in the... You know, uh, some playtest groups found this scenario sped by really fast because they only picked one thread and went through it. Here's how to handle that if you feel that's a concern. I would also very much encourage designers, as would you, to have lots of opportunities for, for play and talk. I mean, it's sort of the philosophy behind my Ocean of Clues design principle is... If, you know, they go into the ocean, they're going to get wet. They're never going to think, well, this was just a, a dry uh, peninsula that we walked down. They're always going to feel like there was a lot going on and more we could have done. And that's the goal of an Ocean of Clues type scenario is to present a living milieu that is both interesting enough to have every NPC interaction meaningful, but also contains at its core some horrible mystery that you need to solve, ideally dangerously. Right. And I guess when we're specifically talking about playtest feedback, if every single group says this is too linear, 
you've got a problem. Then put in some more logic gates. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Which may or may not be linearity, but you've yeah. got a problem. And right. if one group says it, that may be down to the dynamics of um, that group. Yeah. Or yeah, they, they just had a, a really strong, what we used to call the collar back in the old days, uh, the very, very old days. And they, you know, someone really had to get home because they had an early day at work the next day. So they're like, we are ending this session at 10 o'clock. I don't care how exciting the greengrocer looked. And so that just drove them into that, you know, uh, quick march experience that again can be fun because you have the sense, which is very rare around a gaming table of being a well-disciplined band knocking down problems, but it's not the same woolly improv fun that I think lies at the heart of the art form. Right. Well, speaking of efficiently moving through things, it's time for us to move through this commercial to a hut on the other side of this hut. The skies above New Olympus are patrolled by caped crusaders, but these superior beings are far from heroes. They wield their powers with reckless disregard, serving the interests of corporate overseers and silencing those who oppose their will. You are Clara Keenig, investigative journalist for the pedestrian newspaper. You intend to prove that the privileged superhuman elite do not yet hold a monopoly on justice. Welcome to Alter Egomania, the newest setting for the Gumshoe one-to-one system. Featuring a quick start rules guide, printable problem and edge cards, and a starter adventure. Alter Egomania contains everything you need to run a one-player, one-GM game set in a universe of corrupt superheroes. Exclusively available in PDF. The exciting format unaffected by global paper shortages. That can't get stuck in customs. That's waiting for you right now. At the Pelgrane Press web store. Or drive through RPG. It's time to polish off the compass rose, head on into the room, uh, full of beautiful maps, because once more, we find ourselves in the cartography hut. And this time around, beloved Patreon backer Monster Talk shows us an image that he found on a Zillow listing. And if you go to the blog page for this episode, you can click on the link to see the image, because of course we don't own the image and can't steal it. And he says about this, which is a floor plan of a house, if I found this on a gaming table, I'd assume the DM had really phoned it in for that session, but I smell a veil out. Or is there some mundane explanation for this mind-warping architecture? Patrons want to know. And of course, we're going to provide both the mundane explanation and then have a longer than three minute segment (laughs) by moving on past that. And so Ken, as a trained cartographer, use the audio medium of podcasting to describe this map. All right. This is the layout of uh, ostensibly a three bedroom, uh, one and a half bath house. It's at 101 East Linfield Street in Glendora, California. And the way that the map reads, it is impossible to get to the master bedroom without doing a snail's course through the house, moving from living room to dining area to kitchen to laundry room to the excitingly titled bonus room. (laughs) That's where you collect your bonus. That's where you collect your bonus. At which point you then dodge through the bathroom, hoping no one is in it already, into a little hallway where you have your choice of going to the sort of uh, Nautilus chamber bedroom, which is the only one with an ensuite bathroom, or into what is called the master bedroom, despite it 
not having an ensuite bathroom. The result being uh, ridiculous to the various Tyro who imagines traffic flow through this house. There's also a couple of weird effects on the layout. Like, for example, laundry is the only room that's abbreviated. All the other rooms are spelled out even to the extent of shrinking the font. So it's very confusing there. There is a, I want to say maybe a shortage of doors in general. You can't get into the house from the garage. You can't get out into the outdoor bar from the kitchen. You again have to go through the laundry room. um, And that's through a sort of a double door situation, uh, like sliding French doors. And just generally, it seems like there would be, for example, a bedroom with no windows in it, which I think is against code in California and is certainly, I mean, not to speed ahead to our uh, nerd troping, but we all know what sleeps in a bedroom with no windows. I think we all do. (laughs) (laughs) Should I go into more detail or have I painted a picture? I think you've covered that. I think that's an excellent map describing. Thank you. And this house, as you point out, sold in uh, 2021 for $780,000. And so a house that was really designed that way, wouldn't sell for that. People would point out the problems with that. Although, you know, with housing the way it is, maybe. Yeah. In California, who can say, right? Maybe, maybe so. And the fun ruining is just very simple, right? Yeah. If you look on the Zillow website and you look at the pictures of the living room, you can see that there is actually a door into that little hallway from the living room up in the Northeast corner of the living room. So they just left it off the plan because the Zillow guy was drawing I don't even want to think how many plans in a tearing hurry. So that's just what happened is that the wonderful nautiloid construction of the house is actually not the case. I mean, the bedroom is still windowless. There are still problems with this house, but the bizarre labyrinthine minotaur-esque nature of the, of the house goes away once you add that missing doorway. Right. So onto the, the nerd troping onto turning this into a scenario. Glendora is 26 miles east of Los Angeles. There is one haunted house not far away. There's a 10-acre compound that was featured on an episode of the uh, reality show, uh, reality, of course, in uh, quotation marks, Haunted Collector. And, of course, reality shows about ghost hunting are always impeccably true. Uh, This had lavish parties in the 1940s. Uh, In the 1970s, it had come down in the world. It was a halfway house. And so when the uh, new occupants took over, either from the 40s or the 70s or a combination of both, there were chilling presence, shadowy figures, rumbling noises. And, and of course, the best of all, of all of the ghost manifestations, bloody scratches appearing on the wall. So we know that there's some ability of this area, at least, to retain uh, ghosts. So are ghosts what come to mind, Ken, when you think of this layout? You've already mentioned the the windowlessness and the obviousness of that. Right. Well, I mean, I'm going to also add a couple more nuggets of Glendoran elliptonic history. Uh, there was a Claire empath, which is someone who, when you write to them, they write back and describe your problems like Edgar Casey used to do or Edgar Casey's people. He was too busy napping. What a great job that was. <laughs> Dorothy Spence Lauer, who lived there in the 1960s in Glendora, not in that house. So there's a psychic channel. Also, there was a mysterious fall of ice in Glendora in 1959 and a UFO sighting, uh, a pair of UFO sightings, one in 1957 and one in in 1975. So uh, right in the same time as your halfway house era, Robin, we have a, a UFO sighting. So that's right. Thing. So it vibrates with 40 in energy. Exactly. Uh, which is unsurprising since Los Angeles is one of the great nexi of 
mystical uh, weirdness in America. Very much. The the old tip America on its corner, all the loose bits fall to the end. That is the case. So, yeah, I mean, we talked about the obvious thing to live in the windowless bedroom in the middle of the nautiloid house, and that would be some kind of uh, minotaur slash vampire slash vampator. Any of those could be there. I feel like if we're talking about ghost energy, UFO energy, and clarempathic energy, the house might be functioning as a a funnel that collects a broken key energy, right? The the corrupt Po that makes uh, Chinese vampires. I think that that's probably, you know, focuses up and just accumulates, if not in that, you know, windowless bedroom, possibly in the bathtub of the weirdly busy trafficked bathroom, or maybe the closet of the windowless bedroom, which is actually the straight middle of the nautilus shell of the house so i'm worried about that uh, there is a pool i want to say in the house it's got a lovely pool if you look at the pictures it's a, it's a very handsome establishment and so the pool itself could be like a uh, an etheric sink or it could be where you know you you drown people before you feed them to the nautilus monster that uh, lives in the middle of the house if you've got some sort of gigantic vampiric snail this is where obviously uh, we should have darcy ross come on and <laughs> offer her opinions on vampire snails because i'm sure they exist everything's horrible in the natural world this is what we learn well but, that's a spin-off podcast exactly Ken and darcy talk about vampire snails <laughs> yes that's well you know it's it it, it it you know the 19 episodes that we got in were all good <laughs> but at some point i feel like the premise should have opened up. So when I think of a house that is difficult to navigate, I think of how architecture works in my dreams, mm -hmm. because I certainly, and I imagine a lot of other people do, have a, spend a lot of time in my dreamlands moving from place to place in weird houses and weird areas. And part of that is just the, the mechanics of the way that dreams work in that they can't go backwards and remember what set they had created for you in the previous scene. You always have to keep going forwards mm -hmm. and they mix up the details so the other possibility which is not necessarily a contradiction of any of those other possibilities is that this house is manifesting from the dreamlands or at least does sometimes right because if you go there during the day or look at the other photos on the zillow site all of those doors are there right that mm -hmm. the there's a rational version of this house that exists but at certain times it turns into the one that's accurately rendered here on the floor plan or that possibly the person who drew up the floor plan, you know, they were groggy. They had a little nap in midway through. And that's why they made that mistake because they were transmitted into this uh, dream house. And mm. that this house in Glendora is either the vanguard of the dreamlands starting to manifest itself in the real world, which of course it would choose to do somewhere where there's ghost houses and Claire empaths and so forth, or it's just simply a portal into the dreamlands that you can use uh, if you're, you know, focused in the right way. O ordinary people, even the people who live in that house, don't know it as that, you know, that if you follow the maze as if you can only follow it the way it is in the map instead of going through the house in the sensible way, you can then move into the dreamlands. And possibly there are other requirements that you need to fulfill because, you know, you don't just want someone falling into the dreamlands by accident. And, and that is your portal that gets the player characters in the modern day into the dreamlands, which of course is extraordinarily da dangerous because if you die in the dreamlands, when you're dreaming, you wake up. If you die in the dreamlands with your living body, you, you die. Yeah. You're just like if you died in Switzerland, I want to point out that this house was built in 1957. 
So right when that UFO is showing up, that first UFO is showing up over Glendora. And so maybe it's built by a sort of an Ivo Shandor dream architect type guy. And he deliberately constructed it to do this. It's not one of those houses that, you know, sort of fell into uh, the dreamlands, but it is built as a corrupt Poe accumulator, dream gateway, etheric sink, etc. And then as a result of that, you know, he built the house and then he used it to walk into the dreamlands where he did his weird dreamland stuff, you know, probably harassing, you know, Piazzador or something. But the fact that he built it then creates this magnet, this sort of dream mouth that attracts the vampire Nautilator or whatever else is in there. Well, now that we know to be afraid of a dream Nautilator, I think it's time for us to flee into the safety of a now familiar hut. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Keep this podcast running efficiently by joining the illustrious ranks of such backers as... Nate Merritt. Urs Blumentritt. Alan McSager. Andrew Cowie. And Bart Malio. The whir of the projector, the smell of the popcorn, and the scratch of whatever that is under our feet welcome us once more to the center seats at the center aisle of the Cinema Hut, where we are settling down to watch the science fiction cinema essentials. And Robin, we uh, got a, a remarkable distance through the 1960s last time, which puts us in the middle of the decade. Maybe we'll get through it. The 60s, of course, uh, everyone is crossing their fingers and waiting for the big one. But Spoiler, there are, we're, we're not going to get through this. Yeah, we're not going to get to it. Uh, but uh, there are a, I don't want to say surprising, but a significant number of bangers before we get to one of the top three science fiction films, maybe the greatest science fiction film of all time. And right. we're going to begin, Robin, I think, with a movie that you like better than me, because I think everyone likes this movie better than me, <laughs> Jean-Luc Godard's Alphaville from 1965. So, Robin, right. do you like this better than me? Or? I must, because I put it in boldface you as did. an essential. Right. Right, so I was uh, teasing this development last week that science fiction has gone to Europe and become avant-garde, and there's nothing more avant-garde in the canon, I think, than uh, Godard's Alphaville. This is not just an influential science fiction film, but a, I think, really the first instance of the existential mystery, which we've talked mm -hmm. about so much on this show. And if I describe the plot, 
I am misleading you into thinking that the plot exists. Is, it's there, but it's it's hidden under a dreamlike haze. But it, it's not plot forward in any way. And it's a weird film in a bunch of ways, one of which is that Eddie Constantine plays the character Lemmy Caution, who is an iconic detective character who is featured first in a series of novels by Peter Cheney and then in a whole bunch of European films, including a bunch that starred Eddie Constantine. So in a way, Alphaville is if Ethan Hunt from the Mission Impossible series, as played by Tom Cruise, was suddenly in a David Lynch movie. Mm -hmm. And the influence of this on Lynch is pretty heavy. But so basically, this detective is, is tracking down Professor Von Braun, formerly known as Leonard Nosferatu, uh, going through a series of apartments. They've picked a weird modernist architecture and made them look strange with hazy black and white photography. And he's sort of heading in through a, a dream, trying to figure out what meaning is, essentially, while deep under the surface, there's a plot where he's trying to not only kill Professor Von Braun, but to fight the dictatorial computer Alpha 60, which controls people's lives by draining them of pleasure and semiotic meaning, because, of course, this is Europe and it's Gadar. Mm. So extremely influential. It is an avant-garde film, but from one of what I would argue is Godard's fun periods. And if you want to see the outer avant-garde reaches of the genre I work, uh, you got to see Alphaville. And if you are a fan of watching people assemble Volkswagens, you will be a fan of this movie. It is very much like that. You know, I will, I will have to defer to your uh, statement that it's all those other things because it looked a lot like people building Volkswagens while John Luke Godard uh, narrated stuff. So there we are. Well, if you want to see the contrast between Ken and Robin, there it is. There it is. However, a movie I believe that we both come together on as brothers is Planet of the Vampires by the great Mario Bava, one of the uncredited sources for Alien, shall we say, and a great movie in and of its own right. It is wildly exciting and colorful. It's Mario Bava, I think, in his, you know, sort of his, his early color film exists. What can I do with its stage? So it's, it's uh, just... Uh, eye-popping, and it's a genuinely scary, you know, alien monster story over and above all those other things. Right. So, a ship lands on an alien planet. The astronauts discover that something horrible is happening. There's uh, a possession with a, hor a horrible, grotesque, zombie-like effect. So, it is science fiction horror. It has Barry Sullivan in, in the lead as the gratuitous C-list American actor lead. They have super groovy leather cat suits as their mm -hmm. astronaut outfits, which I think shows a consistent interest of Mara Bava's across <laughs> a series of films. And the uh, look of it, the atmosphere, the feeling of terror, it is one of the essential horror science fiction films. If we had a, a shorter list that just showed the intersection of those two things, the depiction of the planet itself uh, with Bava's crazy color sense is uh, uh, really uh, riveting and memorable, and it's it's about the atmosphere and, as you point out, a, a huge influence on Alien. Yeah, the the shot of them discovering the giant dead alien, that sequence is even if you've already seen Alien and loved Alien, seeing that sequence done by Bava in color in this idiom is still incredibly powerful. It's a legitimately scary, moving, cosmic moment in film it's it, i would say it's of a piece with the 
showing the flying saucer and the thing from another world. I feel like it's, it's a, it's a real jolt of the properly cosmic in, in a world that, that doesn't have it. And that cosmic, of course, is the overlap of science fiction and horror. From Italy, we hop back over to the French New Wave and Fahrenheit 451 by Francois Truffaut, 1966. Of course, this is an adaptation of the classic uh, Ray Bradbury novel about a dystopian future in which uh, not just some books, but all books are uh, regarded as uh, horrible items that must be destroyed by the firemen, mm-hmm. the uh, agents of this uh, very peculiar dystopia. And uh, it is one that is not just about totalitarianism, but uh, taking the material from Bradbury's original novel about sort of know-nothingism and even a fear, the fear people have of fiction and being upset by things in fiction and this subset of people who, when they are upset by something in fiction, feel that they have been harmed and want to destroy that thing. It is a film that was initially, I think, downgraded by critics and one that plays much better today because of its essential ambiguity of tone. Mm -hmm. That it is sort of satirical, but it's not whack you over the head satirical the way that something like Dr. Strangelove would be. And it depicts the horror of totalitarianism in a somewhat detached way through mostly through the visuals. Mm -hmm. So it's all there, but it doesn't have the, like if this was a Stanley Kramer film, the lead character played by Oscar Werner, who is a fireman who actually has a secret yen for reading and becomes a rebel from within, Mm -hmm. you would have an impassioned speech by him where he explained why everything you've seen is bad. (laughs) And that's not Truffaut's deal at all. And it's not Bradbury's deal, technically. Not Bradbury's deal either. And Oscar Werner is sort of an interesting presence. This may be one of his better roles because he's sort of detached and ambiguous. You also have uh, Julie Christie playing a double role as both the sort of very pro-regime wife to the lead character, but also a a fetching neighbor who is uh, hooked up to the resistance. There's also a it seems even more modern today because people are obsessed with their flat screen giant TVs that they have mounted on their walls, which they refer to as their family. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cyril Cusack is the representative of the regime who uh, you will see a lot of resemblance between his character as sort of a, a both a tyrant and a petty buffoon. Uh, you'll see uh, the Michael Palin character from Brazil in him. Mm-hmm. And you'll also see really the very first full on treatment of brutalist architecture as indicative of a dystopia. There's a little of that in Alpha Bill, but it's not called out in the same way. And so this is also hugely influential on the look of other dystopian films that follow. Yeah. And the final sequence, the, the, the snowy sequence with the characters sort of walking in the quasi ritualistic circle, reciting the bits of literature that they can remember is by itself just, uh, you know, social science fiction, at its best, and it does a million times what any Stanley Kramer speech could do. It's a terrific, you know, end punch to a movie that I think develops a little maybe more unevenly than than you do, Robin. I'm not convinced that Julie Christie should have played both characters, although I sort of get what Truffaut was doing. Uh, but, you know, when you when you end with that, you know, sort of gut punch of a final sequence... You can forgive maybe a couple of side trails on the way there, I think. Right. And uh, gorgeous cinematography. Yeah. From beautiful Nicholas movie. Rowe. Bernard Herrmann does the score. So uh, just a terrific, terrific movie. And it's Truffaut. So what can you say? Right. Right. 
So, Ken, I think you're going to talk about a film that has a way of getting under your skin. Literally. It's a movie based, again, on a science fiction novel, although once more, this is a case where they had the treatment for the uh, movie already, and they said, hey, Isaac Asimov, do you like money? And Isaac Asimov said, you know I do. And so he wrote the novel Fantastic Voyage. Um, he also got a chance to meet Raquel Welch, which, you know, delighted him almost as much as money, I'm sure, as it would delight anyone, really. It's Richard Fleischer directed it. It's another one of Fleischer's sort of big technicolor science fiction adventure extravaganzas. Uh, we talked about his terrific 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. This is 20,000 Leagues except they're very small leagues because a futuristic submarine is shrunk down to go into someone's body and uh, zap a tumor that is killing a, a, a vital scientist. But, you know, sure enough, someone on the ship is going to sabotage it because that's how you get. I mean, that's woman on the moon, except this time it's woman in a dude, I guess, technically. And it's a, you know, banger cast. We talked about Raquel Welch already, but Donald Pleasance is in it. Edmund O'Brien. It's once more Richard Fleischer. He, he may not be on anyone's list of great directors, but I feel like if you're doing this kind of material, he is a very comforting presence to have at the helm. He'll give you exactly what you want, which in this case is, you know, white corpuscles attacking you, right? Right. So this falls into the substream of science fiction. That's all about a radical perspective shift, mm -hmm. like Incredible Shrinking Man. That shift is by shrinking and seeing the body as recreated as a bunch of 1960s Technicolor sets is, I think, a, one of my big examples, I guess, really, of the sense of wonder mm -hmm. in science fiction and the sense yeah, of it wonder. Yeah, does, it does for the bloodstream what uh, maybe Star Trek the motion picture tries to do with nebulas. Right, except there's a lot more interesting things happening in the bloodstream than right. uh, in a nebula, it turns out. The next one is a very noirish entry, one that I would almost call Wainscott science fiction, because it's not entirely clear until the thing that we're not going to spoil happens. But this is a a fascinating entry in the a very small subgenre of facial surgery movies. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's called Seconds by John Frankenheimer from 1966. It has more of a sort of a noirish tone than an overtly SF tone, in part because it's in the then contemporary world and stars Rock Hudson as a man undergoing a, a midlife crisis who is a distance uh, from his uh, wife and family wants to start over and he gets the opportunity to do just that with a, with a secret program where he goes and gets a new younger face. Unlike some plastic surgery movies, it's Rock Hudson both times, but the previous one is Rock Hudson with white hair and old age makeup. And then suddenly he's super handsome 1966 Rock Hudson. He goes off to California to uh, become a, an artist and participate in orgies in a vineyard. And, uh, well, turns out that like a lot of actual non-heightened midlife crisis, mm -hmm. he has reason to regret. Mm -hmm. Frankenheimer, first of all, is, I think, best known as a thriller director. And this feels like a suspense sort of paranoid conspiracy thriller. Uh, I guess technically it is all of those things more than a science fiction film, but it's this science fictional concept at the core of it. And it does play with the core science fictional concern of if my identity changes, if I transform my outer self, am I still me? Is there still, you know, a, a continuity of being? And we'll see that sort of thing go on, you know, as we get deeper into SF with more, you know, brain transferring and whatnot. But the vibe of this movie while being very, very conspiracy thriller is still, 
you know, wrapped around that core science fictional question. It's weirdly similar. And I don't know if there was something in the air or if the Japanese director Hiroshi Tashigahara, I think he got it from a different Japanese movie uh, novel, uh, not the novel that Seconds is based on, but it's another movie called The Face of Another, which is from 1966, which I have not seen, but is also about, you know, changing your face and weird psychological, social effects that happen as a result of that. I would highly recommend that film, mm-hmm. but I don't think it is science fiction in the way that... In the way that Seconds is. That, that Seconds is. Yeah. But definitely, it's a trippy fable of identity in the same way, and mm-hmm. uh, also very much worth seeing. Right. And I think the last one we're going to get to uh, this time, that got us all the way to 1967, and just on the cusp of the thing you wanted to foreshadow... Leave you waiting. Yeah. Quatermass in the Pit. So this is another Hammer adaptation of a previous... BBC TV show uh, featuring the iconic character uh, Professor Quatermass. Uh, he is now played by Andrew Keir. It is now in color. Uh, it is now directed by uh, Roy Ward Baker. And it's known in the U.S. as Five Million Years to Earth because five million years ago, there was a bit of a, a UFO crash and the UFO gets dug up. And it turns out, don't dig up five million year old UFOs, especially can if uh, you're in uh, Quatermass's London. No, you do not. Um, this is it, it does complete the trilogy in that Quatermass sort of gets a little payback for his bullying ahead Doctor Who style from the first two movies. It's sort of a shame we don't get Brian Donlevy uh, to finish it out. Although I do like Andrew Keir better as Quatermass, and the movie itself is. A lot of science fiction elements wrapped around a core horror story. And so if you remember from the horror essentials, I gushed over this movie uh, seemingly forever. I could do that again. But the notion of ancient astronauts uh, in the most Lovecraftian sense of that term is brought to the surface by Quatermass in the Pit. It has a wonderful conflation of the psionic with the supernatural, which is another strong Doctor Who vibe and another strong vibe of 60s and 50s science fiction. It's based, again, obviously on a Nigel Neal teleplay, and it is a a supremely good horror thriller and a supremely good science fiction thriller as well, despite the sort of, you know, handicaps that come with it being a late hammer that it, uh, Roy Ward Baker, I think, excel, exceeds himself directing it, but it is not the direction that you watch it for. It's the story and the slow demonstration that Quatermass scientism has a absolute bad end to it. And you can see it ahead if you, if you watch. And that I think is the science fictional element in this that these Martians are sort of moving along the same path that we were. And five million years ago, Bad things happened as a result, and here we are. Uh, that is a, another strong science fictional element, and it's a, a conundrum and a philosophical problem that Quatermass sort of wrestles with in the course of the of the film that sort of gives it that philosophical depth that I think makes it also a great science fiction film, as well as just an absolute banger of a horror movie. Well, next week we'll resume, and we'll start, and we'll have a date with some hominids and a monolith. Mm, yeah.
In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the source book for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation Ugh! In Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a forward by Ray Plausibly Deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the Nirvana of Nyarlathotep. Tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. The whirring of time gears and the clacking of chronotons tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine, which of course is the conveyance that his superiors at Time Incorporated used to send him back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and even mutilate it. And sometimes we send Ken back to change history, and sometimes we look for little traces of things that Ken, or perhaps the Time Adversary, have already done, to explain what happened and what would have happened without it. And I think I can't think of an any clearer example of blatant interference in the time stream than on January 31st, 1914, when a meteor struck a torpedo factory in Sistersville, West Virginia, and it sent an exploding ball of nitroglycerin into the air. And so when I saw this on the newspapers.com Twitter account and then clicked through to see the archival newspaper story, I thought, I, I have a pretty good idea of not who did this, but that you must have been there. So, Ken, take it away. Right. Okay, on January 31st, 1914, as you mentioned, a meteor hits the Young Torpedo Company, headquartered in Sistersville, West Virginia, blowing up a 100-gallon tank of nitroglycerin. As they say, C.C. Curtis, an official of this city, saw it, a blazing and seething ball of fire, drop into the plant. He was 800 yards away from the plant, stunned by the spectacle. The explosion knocked him to the ground, but he was unhurt. Right. And it blew a crater 200 or 300 feet wide and 100 feet deep. Every window in the city was shattered. Similar damage done in surrounding towns, even as far as Clarksburg, 30 miles distant. So quite... Because meteors hitting things, yeah. rare enough. Meteors hitting tanks full of nitroglycerin, that's got to be intervention. Got to be a thing. Well, the Young Torpedo Company is established in 1904 to create TNT and torpedo charges, not for the Navy and not for Captain Nemo, but for the oil and gas industry. The torpedo is a technical term of art for an explosive device that combines a shaped charge at one end and a column of water. Uh, you drop the torpedo down into the, your oil well and the bomb goes off and forces the column of water down into the oil well. So it's basically the first fracking technology. 
and it was invented in 1864 by a former Union Colonel E.A.L. Roberts, who got a patent for his oil well torpedo in 1866. He died in 1881 after a lifetime spent fighting off patent infringers. And if you think oil is fun now, wait till you're sneaking around a field at night with two 10-gallon cans of nitroglycerin getting ready to illicitly blow up a uh, oil well bottom because you don't want to pay the 115th royalty to E.A.L. Roberts to do it. Right. And wherever you are in the U.S., it's still cowboy time. So oh, yeah. I'm sure everybody has six guns, and it's very explodey. It's a magical time. And the um, uh, torpedo wars, as they were called, uh, rage back and forth across Pennsylvania and West Virginia. And West Virginia being, I assume, you know, a state where people cared less if they were blown up. There was a lot of explosives manufacturing was done uh, it's down on the ohio river it's you can just sail can it go up. into into the memory hole that there was a thing called the torpedo wars and we for, yeah <laughs> we have to see little stories on newspapers.com to find out about it uh, american history is a banger it's the best one so to speak so anyway this is what the torpedo factory does is it builds this the young torpedo company is one of the companies that came up after the patent on Roberts's torpedo expired, according to one source, a angry lefty source. So draw your own conclusions. It expired because Congress refused to renew the patent because it was causing the torpedo wars. And so they said, maybe if we just make everyone able to use torpedoes, we'll stop having all these troubles. Well, a, a torpedo society is a polite society. Right. Well, I, I think politess is up and down. But as we know Pennsylvania is where the American oil industry began. The first well is drilled by a guy named Edward Drake in 1859 uh, at Titusville. And that whole Appalachian fold is where you have a lot of oil territory. So to explain why the young torpedo company went up in explosion of nitroglycerin, let me share with you another story of another oil man. If I may, Robin, this oil man is a guy named John Wilkes Booth. Yes, that John Wilkes Booth. Beloved actor, John Wilkes Booth, coming off a gigantic, successful tour of Cleveland. You know, many, many standing O's. Yes. I'm going to get out of acting and into something stable. Oil. Exactly. Like oil. Uh, he meets two guys in Cleveland, John Ellsler and Thomas Mears, and forms with them the Dramatic Oil Company. And this is in January of 1864. They drill their well Wilhelmina near Cranberry, Pennsylvania in May of 1864. They buy a share in another well in Pithole Creek. So far, the well is doing good. John Wilkes Booth thinks, great, I can retire from acting and become an oil man. But the well begins to dry up. And so they attempt to shoot the well, which is what you did before E.A.L. Roberts invented his torpedo, by just dropping a big barrel of black powder down the well. And the trouble with doing that is your well falls in a lot of times. And that is indeed what happened in July of 1864. The dramatic oil company folds dramatically, folds dramatically. Exactly. And uh, John Wilkes Booth says, well, acting hasn't worked out. Oiling hasn't worked out. Maybe I'll try assassinating. He goes to Baltimore, falls into bad uh, companions, and the rest is literally history. So what's going on? What's obviously going on is that some well-meaning time person, maybe someone else at Time Incorporated, I can't speak to that, thought, well, I like drinking with actors and I like Abraham Lincoln. What if we give John Wilkes Booth torpedo technology? We bring him some torpedoes. So instead of shooting as well with a black powder, he shoots with a properly designed oil torpedo. And instead of 
blowing up his oil company, he opens up the, the well, increases the production 20-fold, which was about the number that a good torpedo would do if you had a proper well. And sure enough, Booth uh, gets a lot of money. The share that he bought in Pithole Creek gushers in 1865 after our history's Booth was dead. So he's got two producing wells and a source of torpedo technology. And that other time guy, no doubt uh, brushing their hands together, said, a job well done. No assassinated Abraham Lincoln. I can return to the present and uh, fill out my reports. Well, the trouble with this is that there are, as you have hinted, chrono adversaries, and they don't just want to stop at John Wilkes Booth owns two oil wells and doesn't kill the president. They begin supplying him with ever more torpedoes and increasing his stash of oil in Pennsylvania and in that stretch of the country, Ohio, New York, there's lots of oil up in the Northeast, especially in the early days of the oil industry. And suddenly, rather than John D. Rockefeller, who is bad enough running the American oil industry, you have John Wilkes Booth running the American oil industry using his vast oil fortune to oppose every good cause, certainly civil rights, certainly trying to prevent Grant from breaking the Ku Klux Klan, certainly any number of bad things that he uses his uh, sudden millions of oil monies to do. And so you don't want the Booth Oil Company becoming the standard oil company. That's, that's not what you want. So the way to solve it is not to necessarily undo it, although you do that as well, but to go to the, the source of the problem, which is someone bringing a time machine to Sistersville, West Virginia, because remember, there's no one at the Young Torpedo Company. You could bring your time machine in, load it up with oil torpedoes, bring it back to John Wilkes Booth and say, hey, man, here's some fun oil torpedoes. Try these. But you can't do it if while you're out uh, getting a sandwich, someone drops a meteor on your time machine and make sure that, you know, it goes up along with a hundred gallon tank of nitroglycerin. And the way you know that this was me that did it is nobody was killed in this gigantic explosion. And in fact, the young torpedo company survives for another 20 years. They just are like, well, cost of doing business. They rebuild their back in it and paying dividends as soon as they can. So, so one meteor, no harm, no one foul. One meteor, no harm, no foul, but no time loop in which John Wilkes Booth ever gets a torpedo. So he once more becomes destitute and irritated and kills Lincoln because if someone's going to be drinking with actors and saving Abraham Lincoln, it should be someone who can do both of those things correctly, Robin. Right. Because the, the chrono adversaries, uh, which I guess we still don't exactly know who they are, but nonetheless, they're bad. They're not going to try again to get more torpedoes before or after now that they know you have the meteor trick. Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's sort of the, you know, a uh, warning shot, if you will, for chrono adversaries is to drop a meteor on something. Well, I think really that's, that's probably a, a good way to deal with, uh, with any adversary is to uh, throw a meteor at them, which uh, I, I guess eventually will reach the Patreon level where you will reveal your meteor secrets. But for now, I think that we've uh, fully answered this little footnote in history and discovered that there were torpedo wars. So what more could you ask people? And that John Wilkes Booth was an oil man. I mean, if yeah. you're looking for a gusher of historical facts and fun, look no farther. Yeah. So I think we've, we've done our job this week and uh, next week we'll come back to uh, do a very similar job. 
Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Save this podcast from the meteor of underfunding alongside such celestial stable backers as... Neil Kaplan. Oren Gashuri. Paul and Cleo Bushland. Robbie Carlton. And Ruth Tillman. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our latest design, Bring Me the Incompetent Laggard File. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff.